We'll be reading again from 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, when the people of Israel finally came to Samuel and demanded a king to judge over them, they wanted a king like all the nations. They unfortunately immediately broke the first of the things that God had commanded them in Deuteronomy 17. They were not looking for one that God chose. They were looking for one that suited them. And so God gave them a a Saul as king, the most handsome in all the land, and a head taller than anyone else. God gave them someone who looked the part, who looked like the king's of the nations. But when it came time to take responsibility, do you remember what happened? Do you remember the story from Sunday school or from your Bible reading? When it came time to take responsibility to step up and become the king, Saul was hiding. Saul was hiding himself. And even still, although he had some early victories and God worked through him, in time, that bad character, that Fear to do the task that God had set before him was proved out, and the people of Israel suffered. And in the books of First and Second Samuel, that is starkly contrasted with a different king, the second king, King David. Now, I'm not saying that David was an ugly guy, okay? I mean, I don't know. I never saw him. I got no photos. But we can tell from the text that you would not think him to look like a king. In fact, his own dad so thought David was not king material that he left him in the field when Samuel came to anoint him. Because he thought, well, I can't be David. David was a man that did what was asked of him, however and even what was not expected of him, whether he was shepherding for his father in total obscurity or standing before Goliath, before all the armies of Israel. It did not matter. David did his duty. David did what he was supposed to do, and he did it with character. 
It was not about fame or position for him. His heart was for God, we're told. He wasn't asking, what do I have to do? What's the minimum that's required of me to kind of get by? But rather, he was asking, what can I do for God's sake? When we think about leadership, even in the church, some think about it in terms of obtaining a position. Perhaps obtaining a position in minimizing the work. We honor those who look the parts often, even in the church, who have the credentials that we think are the right credentials or the popularity. Others reacting to these abuses that are often created from that want to downplay authority altogether, want to, 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 to get rid of authority and position altogether. But God's way is different. He affirms the reality of position and authority. God created the world with order and with hierarchy. That's how it's designed. You can't get around it. It just is. He also wants us to think and act rightly about it. He wants us to think biblically, according to His Word and His character. He wants us to give position to those who desire to do the work and honor those who live it out. You see, authority flows to those who take responsibility. We must make sure that those in the church with that authority and responsibility are also qualified for it. Paul takes most of chapter 3 to clarify just this fact, and we're going to deal just with the first part of it. He's going to talk in the whole chapter about elders and deacons, these two offices, these two positions in the church, um, and it's sort of one unit, but for time's sake, we're going to cut it in half. We're going to talk about elders this week. We're going to talk about deacons next week, but this morning, I want you to consider two goods, two goods of elders that ought to frame our understanding of it in the church. The first is the good desire of elders And the second is the good character of elders, because strong churches, remember we're talking about what's God's blueprint for the church? How can we make a strong church, one that lasts, one that works, one that that, uh, upholds the truth of God's word and the gospel? And strong churches need qualified elders, and elders are men who fulfill their godly duties with godly character. That's who elders are. Men who fulfill their godly duties with godly character. So let's look at this a little more specifically. Let's look first at the good desire of elders, and we're going to see this in verse 1, just verse 1. The majority of the text today deals with what qualifies someone to be an elder, but, but I think uh, Paul in this first verse says that to aspire to this position is to desire a noble task. Well, what is that task? We've got to answer this question. And so I want to ask three questions here as we get started to understand what the task of elders is. First, the the first question is, what is the task of elders? Of course. The second is, why is eldership a noble task? We need to understand that. And then I want to, to, to clarify, why is it a good desire? Why is it Why is he even clarifying that it's a good desire here? Why does he make a point to say that? Well, let's 
answer these three questions briefly. What's the task of elders? We can gather a bit from uh, this text itself, from the qualifications themselves. We know it must have to do with teaching, since if you look in uh, verse 2, that's required. And we gather from verses 4 and 5 that it must also have to do with caring for the church by leading it. Do you see that in verses 4 and 5? Of chapter 3, he must manage his own household. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so we can tell by that rhetorical question that caring for God's church by managing, or the word there is being the head of, ruling, literally, the caring is by leading. And this syncs totally with what we saw in the last chapter last week in verse Uh, 12 of chapter 2, when it said, I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man, because those those tasks are, um, in their fullest sense, or in the highest sense in, in earthly terms, are fulfilled by elders, and elders are qualified men. And Paul adds in 1 Timothy 5, 17, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so if we were to to kind of give a very brief summary, there's a lot more that could be said, but we've only got so much time this morning, right? And so if we were going to give a very brief summary, we would say that the two major duties in this task of eldership is leading or ruling and teaching. Why is eldership a noble task then? This brings us to this question. You see, the flock of God needs shepherds to lead and to feed and to care and to protect them. And they do that through this ruling or leading and through teaching. But there's a few other verses that might be helpful from Scripture in understanding why this is a noble task. First, Acts 20, 28, Paul says to this church's elders, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 and 16, he says this to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And he says, keep close, watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Therefore, there are three reasons why we could say that this task is noble. First, because God bought Christians. Do you understand that? If you're in Christ, God bought you. And how did He buy you? With the blood of His Son. He paid with the blood of His one and only begotten Son, in order to adopt you sinners into His family, in order to redeem you from your sinfulness and make you one of His own children, His sons and daughters. We in our sinfulness could not even come into His presence, and yet the blood of His perfect Son, who never sinned, never did anything wrong, perfectly fulfilled all of the law of God, covers us, 
And our sin was put on him on the cross, and he died the death that we deserved in order to take away the penalty for our sin, in order to give us his righteousness so that we could be adopted, so that we could carry the family name as well. So this is a noble task because you're you're caring for those, the elders caring for those that God bought with the highest price. A second, second reason this is a noble task is because Christians need elders. They need them. It's a necessity. Without shepherds, you're like free-roaming sheep. You know what happens to free-roaming sheep? They die very quickly. You know, y'all got some, you know, coyotes, out around your house or whatever, you live in the country, you got some sheep, they, those things aren't going to live very long. Paul goes on in Acts 20, after the verse we read, to explain to these elders, as soon as I leave, wolves are going to come in. They're going to come in, and they are not looking to spare anything in the flock. We're easy dinner for wolves without shepherds. It's only a matter of time before the blood gets shed, and we need elders. Every, let, me, let me be super clear on this. Every Christian needs qualified elders over them. You cannot be a Christian off by yourself. You are not going to last. It is not good for you. It is, it is like writing your own death warrant. You need to be in a church where there are elders who are over you, who are keeping watch over themselves and keeping watch over you. And that, that even includes the elders. I can't be a solo elder. Why? Because I need elders who are keeping watch over me as well, right? The third reason that it's a noble task is because God places elders. So God bought Christians. Christians need elders. God places elders. Properly qualified and appointed elders are placed there by God. Did you you remember in that that passage in, in Acts 20, it says that the Holy Spirit made them overseers, that God brought them to that point. If it cost Jesus his own blood to obtain the church and and it's these qualified men he places to care over his flock. Is that not a noble task? Ought we not want that? As Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, they are keeping watch over your souls. Do you want someone to keep watch over your souls? Parents, think about your children right? Sometimes they're out playing, they're doing whatever they're doing, and you recognize something that they're doing that could cause them harm. You recognize if you get into that, if you climb that, if you play with that, if you touch that, that could be of serious consequence to you, and so what do you do? Don't touch that, right? Don't go over there. Stop that. And your kids go, oh, mom, why are you on me? Dad, why are you, you know, their first reaction is, why are you ruining my fun? But you know that they're in danger. And sometimes it's like that 
when you have people keeping watch over your soul. Sometimes it's like, man, why are you, like, why are you bringing that up? Why are you saying like, but they know they're keeping watch. They're that third pers- that, that perspective outside of your perspective that's saying, whoa, I've seen this before. Be careful. We have to be thankful for that. We have to listen. Does that mean they'll do it perfectly? Of course not. I mean, do, do you parent your kids perfectly? Do you, you know, is it you, you, you hit it on the head every single time when you warn them about something? No. But it sure is better to do that than not do that. All right. So that's the noble task. Why does he, though, clarify it as a good desire? We may be tempted to think, well, of course that's a noble task. And, and we say that, it's really easy to say that sitting here in the pew, you know, when you're listening to a sermon. It's a lot harder to say that when the elder in your church is sitting with you one-on-one across uh, the table, right? And is preaching not publicly, but preaching privately to you, applying Scripture directly to your sin, to your problem, to your need, to your mistake, to your flaw. It's a lot more difficult then. I laugh. I was talking to a pastor because I was, I was, uh, we were, we were discussing the fact that that people today can listen to a podcast. Someone who's teaching the Bible on a podcast and who is saying something hard or difficult or new, and is challenging them, and they'll listen to it on a podcast, but if I say that to them directly, the exact same thing, it's a total different ballgame. And why is that? Because I'm the one in their life. I'm the one that knows them and loves them and cares for them. It makes no sense, and yet we do that all the time. So many Christians, they'll hear it on, oh, that's, I hate, oh, I can't believe they said that. And then they'll go back and listen to it again and go, oh, yeah, maybe he's got a point. But if I say it, it's, oh, I can't believe you said, I'm leaving. I don't want to listen to you. It's true. Talk to any pastor, and they'll tell you that's their experience. Why? That makes no sense. Your elders know you. They love you. God himself has put them over you for this purpose. I mean, please listen to good teachers on podcasts or whatever. I no problem with that. But for, first and foremost, your elders are your elders by God's appointment. And so we ask ourselves, well, well, of course this is a noble task. But in reality, do you remember Paul's confronting people presenting themselves as teachers and leaders? Wrongly. And he's telling Timothy, you need to go and confront these people. And it may lead some in the church to think, well, then should we suspect anyone who seeks to be a leader or a teacher over us? Because Paul's confronting these people who are doing that. And so should we suspect anyone who, who wants to put themselves in that position? And, and we might also be tempted to think, well, why would I want to risk either being confronted or having to confront someone when, when that's unpleasant? So why would I want to be an elder if that's part of the task? And so, Paul clarifies, no, this is a noble task, and it is good. It's a good desire to aspire to this when you aspire to it rightly. And so, let me be clear again on this. There is nothing good about the title of elder if it is divorced from the noble task of the elder. I want to say that again. There is nothing good about the title elder 
if it is divorced from the noble task of the elder. There are certainly churches that just don't want to have elders. To somehow talk around this whole passage, I've, I was a pastor in one for a while, and it began to sort of confuse me as I was reading Scripture, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And there's certainly churches that deny that there should be a plurality of qualified men as elders in each church. This is a problem, right? And, and, and as I said, one I've witnessed firsthand working in a church with that kind of structure. But there's a, there's a more stealthy issue that I want us to pay attention to here that is much more common in churches like ours and one in which we have to be aware of so that we can fight against it. And this, this stealthy temptation is to give the title of elder to men who are truly qualified, but then give the task of elder to other people. Oh, I ha- we have qualified men as elders, and they meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, so we're good. But then they give the task of elder to other people who don't, who are not those men. Whether it's some official group or whether it's informally uh, so, they functionally allow unqualified people to be over or alongside their elders. And that can't be so. We can't, we can't have elders to be the qualified men who are spiritually leading our church and then say, oh, but we also have this other group of leaders. And oh, by the way, they're the ones that call the real shots here. They're the ones that are really leading. And act like we're not being hypocritical and disobedient to the text. Listen, if elders are a support beam that makes the house of God stronger, that, that, that strengthens it and upholds it, and God outlines what that support beam ought to be, you can't simply decide that a support beam should be something different. Nor can you put something else where the support beam is supposed to go and justify it by saying, well, we don't call it a support beam, so it's okay. No, no, that's what the support beam is supposed to do. That's where it's supposed to go. It has to be the support beam. It has to be actual qualified elders. So, if we need that, support beam because of its strength. We need to understand that the strength of elders or the strength that elders need most is is strength of character. And we see that in verses 2 through 7, the good character of elders. The bulk of the passage deals with these qualifications. Paul wants him to to be able to differentiate uh, against these men who are false teachers, who are setting themselves up as leaders and teachers in the church that, that, that Timothy is to confront versus those kinds of people who ought to be in that kind of position. And I think at this point it's important also for us to differentiate between leadership and fellowship. We are all members of God's household because of Christ. As members, we still sin. Sometimes, unfortunately, we sin a lot, right? And when we sin, we're called to repent. And we look to Jesus and we continue to be sanctified by him. Leaders in the church are members of God's household in the same way. 
But to be a leader, there are qualifications. They must have faith worth imitating, Hebrews 13, 7. A faith that isn't producing the fruit of the Spirit isn't worth imitating. There in Hebrews 13, 7, it tells us to consider the outcome of their way of life. And so there are qualifications for leadership when those are broken, that leader can no longer be a leader. But that doesn't mean that they are out of fellowship. If they repent of their sin, it doesn't affect their fellowship in any way. And so I want to differentiate there between leadership and fellowship. But the major header for these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 is that these men are above reproach. That is not to say that they're perfect in every way, right? But that in regards to these qualifications, there's no reasonable accusation that could be made against them, right? They are, they are of high regard in that sense amongst the people in the church. And so I'm going to divide these qualifications into four buckets because there's like a long list of them, but I think we can kind of put them in four buckets, and maybe that'll help us to understand what Paul is trying to communicate. Those, these buckets are, are first, self-disciplined, second, well-regarded, third, household leader, and fourth, able teacher. So let me, let me just walk through these qualifications as they're written in, in the text here. So the first bucket is self-disciplined. An elder needs to be a person that can lead or govern himself. It's, out, it's, out, um, it's only out of a good self-leadership that anyone can lead other people, right? And as they say, sometimes leading yourself is the hardest thing to do. Am I right? And so it's maybe the best training ground for learning to lead, one of the best training grounds for learning to lead others. And consider Christ. Christ is the epitome of self-discipline. God, uh, uh, omnipotent, right? All-powerful, uh, all-knowing, disciplines himself to be a servant and to put on human flesh and to live amongst us for our sake. He's the epitome of self-discipline. But it's not only that Christ is a model for us in self-discipline. Paul also tells us in Galatians 5 that self-control is one of many uh, qualities that are a product of the Spirit's work. That's the fruit of the Spirit in us. And so it's Christ's Spirit in us that actually produces this kind of self-discipline. It's not just a, he's not just a model for us and we just got to white-knuckle it and just figure it out. But rather, it's His Spirit that actually empowers us to become self-disciplined as we don't look to ourselves for it, but we look to Him. And in what ways should we be self-disciplined? Well, there's a, a handful of related words here. Let me try to distinguish their meanings. First, we got to be sober-minded, it says. That is, uh, the elders must be able to make balanced judgments. I'll say it this way. They think and act fairly. Elders think and act fairly. But then we also have to be self-controlled. They must be able to make sensible judgments. They have common sense in how they think and live and lead, uh, so they think and act wisely as well. And then they also need to be respectable. They must, be, they must act uh, in, by prudent judgments. 
They are able to control their actions, and so they, they think and they act virtuously. They think and act fairly. They think and act wisely. They think and act virtuously. That's, in a nutshell, being self-disciplined. And then he gives some examples of this principle, does he not? He says that they've got, they can't be controlled with alcohol, right? Not a drunkard, he says. An elder can't be preoccupied or overindulgent in alcohol. Second, they've got to be controlled with their temper, not violent, not a, not a fighter, not irritable. The word there literally means to strike. They're not a striker. Controlled with money. Elders, they can't be lovers of money. Listen, elders could be slaves or elders could be CEOs. It's not what the elder has, but what he loves that matters. And then finally, they need to be controlled with their tongue. So they got to be controlled with alcohol, temper, money, tongue. And this is implied in that command to not be quarrelsome, right? And this doesn't mean that they can't ever confront someone, because obviously Paul's already commanded Timothy to confront people. It's their job to fight the good fight for the church. But he must be able to control his tongue to confront or to not confront as it is appropriate and to seek to control the way in which he goes about doing that. These are all very practical examples that reveal a heart or an inner person that doesn't have the fruit of self-control operating very well. Someone who doesn't have the fruit of self-control is going to be someone who can't control their alcohol or their temper or their money or their tongue, right? And so they got to be self-disciplined. Second, they need to be well-regarded. This character must be well-established in an elder's relationship with others. And we have a, a few general ways he's to be well-regarded, and then one that's specific to the church and one that's specific to those outside of the church. So, so how are they to be well-regarded generally? Well, they need to be hospitable. The word hospitable literally means love of stranger. Hospitality towards others is a quality that's honored among faithful people of God throughout Scripture, especially to believers in the New Testament. It's sort of the high point of displaying everyday Christian love and care to open up your home to others, almost as if they are family, yet yet. I want to be clear, not in a way that blurs or removes the line between family and others, as Paul is going to clarify for us in 1 Timothy 5. We don't get rid of the line between family and others, and yet we invite people into our home as if they are family, caring for them as if they are family. Practically speaking, elders and pastors are not celebrities standing far off, or else how could they keep close watch on the flock? We should never go to a church where, where the pastor is unapproachable. Where it's like, oh, well, he's the, he's the celebrity up there and he preaches a good sermon, but, but I could never actually, like he would, I would never be allowed to, to like have a conversation with him. Or he would never take the time to come actually out in the pews and talk with people. I went to a church one time, I, 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 was gonna, I wasn't going to give this story, but it's just so crazy. I went to a church one time, and they had built a new building, and they designed it so that the pastor had a hallway from the stage that went straight to his office so they didn't have to interact with anyone after he was done preaching. He could just beeline back to his office, and then when it was time for him to preach, he could come out. That is, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense 
to me. Hospitable, gentle. They forbear with others. Boy, that takes self-discipline, right? You can see how these things are building on each other. Let's be honest, we're sinful people, and we are sinful people who, like to, who tend to make the same mistakes over and over again, right? And it takes a special kind of gentleness to not only stick with someone, but to do it so patiently. And elders have to do that. Another word that could be used here to describe this, this word for gentle in the Greek, uh, another English word, um, it would be magnanimous. We don't use the term magnanimous so much anymore, but uh, magnanimity, I can't even say it, right? It's the idea of someone who knows that they are positionally higher and yet is especially forgiving and generous to those under them. And no one better represents that than the great shepherd does, right? I mean, who better represents that virtue than Christ himself? And so hospitable, gentle, also not quarrelsome. We've talked about this a little bit already. They're not to avoid confrontation, but as 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, they do it with patience. And when they're wrong, they still correct gently, desiring for people to come to repentance. So those are some general ways that they are well regarded. Also, there are some specific ways in and out of the church. Uh, The first is that they're not new in the church. They're not a recent convert, and I think that this this, uh, principally probably also applies to those who are new to the congregation, right? You may have been a Christian for a long time, but it's your first Sunday, and you go, well, hey, I'm qualified to be an elder. Well, that's not exactly going to work, right? That congregation needs to actually know your character themselves. And so, um, and, and then the particular concern here is stated, Paul tells us, it's so that that, that quick rise in position, it, it naturally results, it's going to naturally result in pride in a person. And verse 6 warns that this pride and conceit will result in falling into the condemnation of the devil, it says. Not that the devil is condemning you. I want you to understand what the text is meaning here. Not that the devil is condemning you, but that you don't fall under the same verdict as the devil fell under. The same kind of pride the devil fell under that condemns him, that's, that's his, the word condemn there, the word um, condemnation, it has to do with like the, a judicial verdict. His pride resulted in a judicial verdict over him, and Paul says, I don't want you to fall into that same thing. One whose pride of position leads them to usurp and do wrong instead of do what they're supposed to do. But then there's this this outside of the church, well-regarded sense. And and, and I'll say it like this, uh, an elder ought to have a good witness outside of the church. There's a term here, well-thought. Well-thought. And and we could um, uh, translate that, good witness. The, The Greek words behind it could literally be translated, good witness. It's not simply, do people like the elder? But does their reputation with outsiders actually represent their Christian faith appropriately? You have a good Christian witness among others. Now, because you can be well regarded, you can be well thought of by your coworkers or by someone in your community, but, but if their gauge for how they uh, think well of someone is actually immoral, then they may actually think well of you for evil and wicked reasons. So it's not just that, like, oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, he's a great buddy. You should hear some stories about some of the stuff that we've done together. He's a great dude. It's like, whoa, whoa, that's not what we're talking about here. But also, 
we need to understand that we can't put a different standard here than one that we wouldn't put on Christ. Because there were some that did not think very well of Christ, right? When he was on earth. But that was actually because Christ was a good witness. It was because his witness was good that they thought bad. It was their judgment that was off, not Christ's character. And so the same would be true of elders as well. It can't be well thought because of ungodly reasons, nor should people outside of the church, if we were to ask them, say, oh, I didn't know that he was like into church or whatever. That shouldn't be the case either. They need to have a good witness. So elders are self-disciplined. They're well-regarded. Also, they ought to be household leaders. Over the years, I've, um, it's not been an uncommon experience to hear people say that an elder needs to be a good leader, and that's so true, and the church needs good leaders. But almost always, as you begin to unpack what, that, what someone means by that, the credentials that follow have to do more with their success in business or their leadership at work or their leadership in some sort of social group and I, and I really, I struggle to call to mind a time anyone cited, uh, first and foremost, how that elder led in their home. I've been a pastor for 17 years. And I struggle to call to mind when someone's talking about an elder or a pastor and their leadership, that the first place that they talk about is how they lead their home. And that is unfortunate. Even in popular Christian leadership books, and listen, I've read plenty of them. There's often a trivial nod to, oh, the, 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 they should give some time, they should give enough time to their family, or oh, they need to be faithful to their wife, you know, and they, they can't have committed adultery or something. But little concentrated effort is put towards it. And look here what Paul does. He puts almost all of his attention to it. For Paul, your leadership chops are found in the home. That's where they're honed. That's where they're learned. That's where they're proved out. In your home, with your family, with your household. And we're given two major indicators of good household leaders. First, he's a faithful and devoted uh, husband to his wife. The phrase here, um, husband of one wife, it literally means one woman man. And oftentimes we just kind of like boil that down to, well, he can't have committed adultery. But that's not, that's not, that's like so small to what Paul is trying to say here. What he's saying is this guy is faithful and devoted to his wife. He loves her well. He's faithful in every way to her. It's not simply that he's never committed adultery. To state it positively instead, he is a committed and devoted husband who does well in leading and loving his wife. And not ought to be seen. The second, it says that his kids are submissive to his leadership, right? Simply, his kids should obey and submit to him. Obviously, Obviously, this doesn't mean that his kids need to be perfect, right? Let's not put a weight on our children that don't, doesn't belong on the children, okay? But he is effective in his discipline, and there's evidence of that. It can be seen. 
And then it says that this is to be done with all dignity. You see, many fathers can simply force their kids to act good in public for an hour, an hour and a half every Sunday morning. But Paul doesn't want an act. He wants the real deal. As one pastor put it, I really uh, appreciated the way he phrased this. He said, "These, these men are effective leaders of their kids, not simply demanders of their kids. There's a difference, right? There's a huge difference. This is the kind of leadership that tends to kids wanting to love their father, wanting to love their mother, wanting to love God, wanting to love what's right, because the way in which this father is actually leading them, and kids, if you've got a father like that, go home and say thank you, because it is all too rare. These kids are kids that tend to do what's right even when what dad isn't around because dad has been so good at raising them. That's the kind of household leader. Why is this kind of household leadership so critical? Well, Paul tells us the reasoning is simple. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let me translate that for you. If a man is not head over his own household, that is ruling, directing, and leading it, how will he be able to do that same thing and care for God's household? The implication is he absolutely cannot. The household is the primary training ground. And I want to be clear, this leadership is not just any leadership, it's spiritual leadership. If they aren't leading their family in worship, how are they going to do that for the church? If they aren't leading them in prayer, how are they going to do that for the church? If they aren't discipling and teaching their family, how are they going to do that for the church? If their kids don't look up to them as models, then how will they be models of faith to the church? We need household leaders. The final thing is that they need to be able to teach. You know, briefly it says they need to be able to teach, and, and here we have one of those kind of unique skills that's needed. It's not devoid of character, for certainly it takes character to do so with the patience and gentleness that the Bible calls us uh, to, to do it and to not be quarrelsome in it, but it also takes a certain degree of knowledge and a certain degree of ability, Right? And that's not to say that every elder must be, in in our opinion, you know, an elite preacher. That's not what I'm saying. And 1 Timothy 5.17 that I quoted earlier tells us that some are just going to be better. They're going to excel in this, and, and we have to let them commit more time to it. They're particularly gifted in it. Yet every elder not only is able to hold to sound teaching, but is able to teach it not only able to hold to sound doctrine, but is able to teach it. Not only holds to the gospel, but is able to teach it. And so elders are men who fulfill their godly duties with godly character. David was a great shepherd and a great ruler of God's people. David was used by God in tremendous ways. God used David to save his people time and again, but David himself was not their salvation. I want you to understand that. David himself was not their salvation. David was an under-shepherd meant to guide the people to faith and obedience in God. David was meant to point them to the great shepherd. Even as David himself wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Your elders are not your savior. 
Now, God may use them to save you in different ways. And in fact, we see that Timothy is called to do that for his church. But, but they are not your savior. They point you to the one who is. That was the goal of the shepherd kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And similarly, God chooses elders to be shepherds over his church. And so I want to give you just two quick applications. First, respect and obey your elders. It's clearly commanded in Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Not merely because they're people of high character, though they ought to be, but also because they were put there by the great shepherd. Now, it's, if it's clear that, that your elders are out of step with Christ and out of step with his word, then the under-shepherd doesn't get to usurp the great shepherd. You've got to obey Christ. And Paul's going to give us some ways to deal with that in chapter 5. But, but these men, even though they won't be perfect, the outcome of their way of life ought to be considered and ought to be imitated. And so my second application is this, especially for young boys and for men, Aspire to these qualities. I want to talk for just a second to you, you boys and young men. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to be true of you? Why shouldn't this be at the top of your list? Why shouldn't you right now at 9 and 10 and 13 and 14 have this at the top of your list? Why shouldn't it be that you aspire not just to the position but to the noble task of shepherding God's people? Men like David who, who don't ask what the minimum is to get by but whose hearts are for the Lord and desire to serve him and his people. Why shouldn't it be this? Why shouldn't it be that our sons, fathers and mothers, say, I may end up being a doctor, I may end up being an accountant, I may end up being a trash man, I'm not really sure, but what I do know is I want to be an elder of God's church. That, please Lord, would you grant me to be able to do, that my faith in you would overflow with the kind of character that would be becoming of an elder of your people. Why shouldn't that be what our sons aspire to? And why shouldn't that be what our daughters want to marry? May the Lord grant it to be so. Amen and amen. Let's pray. God,